Hillary Clinton blasting Donald Trump at a rally in New Jersey yesterday. I think that Donald Trump has disqualified himself completely. The country is going to start winning, winning, winning. And saying that uh, basically the attempt to portray Donald Trump as a danger to the world. She says he's a threat to world Donald order. Donald Trump went on an odd diatribe against Hillary Clinton. Well, look, she lies, and she's been a liar, whether it's the emails or so What's many other things. What happened to her? No, she's terrible. We are going to make America great again. I love you all. Thank you. Thank you up there. Hey, well, thanks for being here at Grace today. We had a great time at the fair on Wednesday. Great turnout. Everything was dry. Jay left it all on the platform, man. He is like wiped out. Good job, Jay, and all his volunteers from Grace. Appreciate all that. Good stuff. If you haven't heard, we're starting a new series this Sunday. Uh, it's been a little controversial. And uh, sent out a mailing, put some stuff uh, on our Facebook site, which I actually didn't read it, but our church Facebook page kind of blew up with responses of people just telling me about it. And so I know there's a lot of angry people out there, and uh, maybe even in here. And if you're one of those people, first of all, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for coming to Grace, and hope you'll hope you enjoy our service. And I know some of you are here, you're probably here just, and you're kind of mad and you got your notepad, and you're just waiting for me to say something wrong so I can be thrown into jail, and uh, you know, you are like ticked off, and so let me just tell you, hey, it's okay to take notes. Again, we're glad that you're here. If you want to relax and enjoy the service more, you can actually tune in like on Tuesday, and if you miss something with your notes, you can get it there and then get me in trouble that way. So, you know, it's okay. Um, everything's good, but I can assure you that we haven't violated any laws and we are not in danger of losing our tax-exempt status under the 501c3 statute that Lyndon Johnson put in in about the 1950s, and uh, no real church has ever lost their tax-exempt status since that law has been put into effect. And if they ever did or even challenged, there would be a whole constitutional issue on whether that's even a constitutional law or not, but that's a whole other story. That's really not what we're talking about. What we're talking about, politics. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I think you will, but some of you won't, but that's okay. Oh, and by the way, if you come here and you're here and you are looking for something that we do wrong or something that I say that's out of bounds, i uh, just mention to you that you're really, this is a whole series, so you really need to come. If I don't say anything that offends you today, Come back next Sunday, because I could say something that will offend you then, or the third Sunday, or the fourth Sunday. You know, you're going to have to catch them all, because uh, you never know what's going to come out of my mouth. So we invite, and we're glad you're here, and hopefully for all of that. A, a lot of, and here's, a, and by the way, if you're a little agitated, because you don't know, like, what, is Kevin going to come down on one side of this political spectrum or another, and, and you're a little just kind of irritated, and you're just waiting to kind of figure that out, and you're trying to analyze that video going, is that pro one or anti the other, you know, was that slanted like everything else I'm seeing? You're trying to figure all that? Hey, you actually may have a lot in common with the people who are in Jesus's audience when he talks about politics in the first century, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So you, if you're feeling a little bit turmoil, that's how the people were feeling when Jesus was asked a political question 
in the first century. And we're going to dive into that. It's in Matthew chapter 22. But before we get there, you just need to know, to fully appreciate this passage, you have to realize the context that it's in, and there's sort of a backstory. But basically, when Jesus is asked this political question about taxes, what we're going to find out today, this was way more political than you think. And then, it, and it was a actually, and I'll explain it. It was a revolutionary question, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. And a revolutionary answer is what he gave. I'll explain that, and a revolutionary response. So, but anyway, here's the backstory. We all kind of get that Jesus was asked this question: Should I pay taxes to, to Caesar or not? You know, and then he said, "Give me the coin." That's what we're looking at. But before that happened, 25 years, and this all happened in Jerusalem at the temple, the last week of Jesus' life. But the backstory is this. This is what they all understood that we don't catch. 25 years earlier is when this tax was put into place. And they're not talking about just any tax. They had a lot of taxes from Rome. A lot of their goods were taxed. There's a specifically politically charged a political powder keg, one kind of tax, that's what they're asking him about, and it's called a poll tax or a head tax. And the poll tax was basically a tax on every individual just simply for the privilege of being under Rome. And because Israel was being um, sort of dominated by Rome, they resented the tax. So that's what made it so politically charged. But the backstory is this. 25 years before Jesus talked about this is when the tax was first instituted. When that happened, a rebellion uh, happened with the Jewish people. It was led by a man named Judas, which was a common name, Judas the Galilean. He led a revolt because of this specific tax that was violently put down by Rome after a while. But when the revolt happened, Judas the Galilean, he basically did three things. First of all, he said, all Jewish people should reject this tax. Nobody should pay it. The second thing he did is he kicked all the foreigners, the non-Jewish people, out of the temple, and thus he cleansed the temple. And then the third thing he did is he said, we reject all governmental authority over us, only God. Only God is our authority, no human government. So that's the three things that he did. Now, he was eventually killed when that, when that movement was stopped. But the movement that he began was the zealot movement. So it began 25 years earlier. But it was still very much in play, even though this Judas character was dead, it was very much in play when Jesus is answering this question and, and when Jesus is asked this question. So, let's look at it. First of all, a revolutionary question. As we see this in Scripture, Matthew 22, there are actually three first century eyewitness accounts to this event. In the, recorded for us in the Bible, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 22, written by Matthew, a disciple of Jesus, who actually, before he became a follower of Jesus, was a publican. 
Please don't leave and say, Kevin said Matthew was a Republican. He was a publican, meaning he was a tax collector and sort of was okay with the Jewish people paying taxes. He's the one that was getting rich because of that. So he's the eyewitness account that we're looking at, although there are others in the New Testament, about this specific event in Matthew chapter 22, and it begins in verse 15. Here's what Matthew tells us from the first century. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are, not, you are truthful and teach the way of God, and in truth... Let me try that again. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to give poll tax or head tax to Caesar or not? So this is the question. Here's, here's what they hit. And what I'm telling you is this is a more revolutionary question than we realize because of the political turmoil that's happening in that day in the first century. More revolutionary than we thought. And, and we all kind of get, or, or if you've been around church at all, you probably understand that these are the enemies, these are the Pharisees, they don't like Jesus, and the Herodians, which were enemies to each other, but they were both enemies of Jesus, and they ask him kind of a no-win question. They ask him a question that puts him between a rock and a hard place, puts him on the horns of a dilemma. He's got to say one or the other. They're asking him a yes or no, and either way he's in trouble with some groups of people. But what I'm saying is, if we really understand the context of when this was written and when this happens, we'll, we'll realize that this is a, it's a way a deeper question than we originally think. It really goes deeper. It's a much more controversial question. They're not just simply saying, hey, should we pay this tax or not? It's a little deeper than that. And the trap that they're setting is more complicated We'll see that it's more complicated when we understand the context and the political turmoil of the day. So, if Jesus in this day and age says, in that day and age says, no, don't pay the tax, then what they get from that is not just don't pay the tax. They're thinking that Jesus, they're asking him basically if he's a revolutionary. Why? If, and I'll get to that. And if he says, yes, pay the tax, then that's a problem too. More than just he'll get in trouble with Rome, it's a little deeper. You see, because of that revolution that had happened 25 years ago, and the zealot movement even of Jesus' day, if he says, no, don't pay the tax, that's not just an economic question. They're all thinking that he's saying he's calling for a revolution. Because what's happened? This is the final week of Jesus' life. He's been teaching for three years. He's been talking about the kingdom of God. He comes into Jerusalem. More and more people are calling him the Messiah. He comes into town. And what does he do? He cleanses the temple. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He cleanses the temple. But when he overturns 
the money changers and drives them from the temple. And now they ask him this question, and they're basically saying, do you pay the tax or not? They're, they're asking, are you a revolutionary? Are you saying, don't pay the tax and, and lead us in a revolt, which is what they expected the Messiah to do? Or does he say, yes, I pay the tax, it's okay to pay the tax, and then he lines up with the Herodians, and you know they kind of do their thing. But here's the problem with that. If he says, yes, pay the tax, it's not simply lighting up with the Herodians. There's something else at play. He's been teaching about the kingdom of God. The problem is, when we read his teaching, Jesus' teachings about the kingdom of God, with our Western culture and 21st century mindset, we read kingdom of God as something that's exclusively spiritual. We read kingdom of God as something that's kind of in our heart or inner peace or having a relationship with God. But that is not the way the people in the first century, the Jewish people, heard that phrase, kingdom of God. When they heard Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, they were thinking about the literal, physical kingdom of God on earth that the Old Testament prophets said that the Messiah would bring. And so if Jesus says to pay the tax, he's not just siding with the Herodians. He's basically saying, hey, that physical kingdom, they're going to all think, oh, he's just blowing smoke about that. That's, just, that's not real. And, and they're... Because he's not talking about a physical king. He's saying pay the tax to the people who are subjecting us. Therefore, he's not talking about the real kingdom coming. Therefore, he can't be the Messiah. See how loaded, politically charged this question is. It's a revolutionary question. That's what I'm saying. They're saying, are you a zealot? Are you a revolutionary? Or are you a Herodian, you know, but they're saying, are you bringing the physical king, are you the Messiah bringing the physical kingdom to earth right now? Now, in our day, when politicians are asked hot button issues, this is a hot button political question that Jesus is being asked. And when, when our politicians today are asked hot button political issues, typically, what do they do? They sort of dodge the question, right? They, can, they answer a different question that they want to answer. It's not the question that they ask. Or once in a while, you know, in this election cycle, somebody will answer real blunt and offend a bunch of people. But, you know, normally it's just, it's dodging and non-answers. And then what happens? Well, that offends a bunch of people. It, gets, it frustrates them more than offends them, and it makes them angry. What's interesting is when Jesus gives this answer, it's not a non-answer. Jesus actually gives an answer, but it doesn't frustrate them. It doesn't make them angry. It actually amazes them. They have a different kind of response. So, revolutionary question. That's why it's a revolutionary question. It's really about revolution. And now, the next thing I want us to see here is that Jesus gave a revolutionary answer. He actually answers this question. But when he answers... He refuses three typical responses to politics in the first century and today. And I'm going to explain that in detail in just a moment. Jesus refuses political simplicity. Jesus refuses political apathy. And Jesus refuses 
Political superiority. Let's break that down. Jesus refuses political simplicity. So what they do is they, his, enemies ask, his enemies join forces and ask him a question and try to get him force a yes or no answer. But Jesus rejects political simplicity and he gives them an answer, but he's not forced into a simplistic yes or no answer on this issue. Let's pick it up where we left off in verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used in the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So, in answering the question, he doesn't duck the question, but he doesn't, he rejects political simplicity, just a yes or no. He answers by saying, and this is more than just he kind of outwitted them to dodge the question. He's actually not dodging. He's giving a deeper answer. And so he says, give me a coin, and they give him a denarius. A denarius is a silver coin about the size of our dime, made of pure silver. And on the coin, there was an image of actually different Caesars through different reigns. But at this time, at this time in history, it would have been Caesar Tiberius. So you have his image on the coin, Tiberius Caesar. And then there, Jesus doesn't just talk about the image. He says, whose image and inscription. The inscription on this coin is Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus. Talking about Augustus Caesar. Jesus is holding up this dime-sized coin. They can't all see it, but they all know because they all have them. They all use them. He says, whose image and inscription is on the coin? Jesus, the very Son of God, is holding up a little silver coin that somebody has given to him. And it says... Caesar, Tiberius, son of God, Augustus. And on the back, it says Pontifus Maximus, high priest. Can you imagine that? That's what he's holding. That's what it says. And they all know the image, and they all know the inscription, because this is very offensive to Jewish people. And then he gives his answer. He's saying, but, but in the answer, he's rejecting political simplicity. He doesn't give them a yes or a no. He actually gives them a deeper, fuller answer. But he's also rejecting political apathy, which there's a lot of that going around too. He doesn't say, hey, we just pull out. I don't need to answer this question. We're out of here. Hey, it's completely separate. It doesn't, a lot of people take this as what he's meaning. That's really not what he's saying. He's rejecting political apathy because he engages in the political answer. He doesn't say yes or no. He gives them a political answer to their question. He engages politically 
when he does that. Now, there were basically four parties, if you will, during Jesus' ministry in the first century. We've already mentioned two of them. There are the Pharisees, they were the religious leaders, and they were sort of compromising with Rome. It was kind of a struggle, it was a little tension there, but they were basically saying, hey, as long as you let us worship the way we want to worship, we're going to kind of go along with you, and we're going to compromise, and, and so we're not going to lead a revolt. So that's the Pharisees. Then there were the Herodians that we already mentioned. They were the people saying, hey, we're, we're totally cool with this tax. As a matter of fact, we're the ones that collect the tax, and it's all good for us. But there are two other groups that, that really are in play here. The third group is the Zealots. The, this is the political party that's still in existence that started 25 years ago in response to this exact tax. And everybody remembers this because there was a bloody a rebellion, a revolt, and it was put down violently just 25 years before. And then there's a fourth group. And the fourth group was the Essenes. Now, the Essenes are best known today because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The Essenes, they were the people, their party said, hey, we are out of here. We are completely separate. We are not engaged in any way. We know the Essenes because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were discovered in 19, between 1946 and 1956. They kept finding more and more of them. And by the way, if I could just throw a little commercial in here, the Dead Sea Scrolls made a falsehood of a, of a, um, of a complaint against the, an argument against the truthfulness of the Bible. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's an old argument. It's already been falsified, but somebody was still go by it today. It used to be said, there's no way 2,000 years later we could know what the Bible really said 2,000 years ago, right? You've all heard that? That argument was put to bed with the Dead Sea Scrolls because the Dead Sea Scrolls found documents from the first century, a whole bunch of Old Testament documents. They were 2,000 years old. So all of a sudden, for the first time in history, we could take our Bible that we had when we found them, say the Bible we had in 1950, and we can compare that with the Old Testament from the first century because we have the scrolls and we found that they were completely identical and that the Word of God had not changed over 2,000 years. So that was free, just kind of threw that in, just to let you know. But so the Essenes, what were they doing out there? They had left, they had bagged it with politics. They said, we're not doing politics, we're going to be completely separate. We're moving out into the wilderness. We're going to set up our own community, our own government. We're not going to pay taxes. We're not going to revolt. We're not going to do any of that stuff. We're just doing our own thing. And we're rejecting everything else, and we're just going to make ourselves an isolated community. Jesus also rejects that type of political apathy because Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't become an Essene. He engages in the political process of the day and he answers with a political answer when he talks about Caesar and his coin. So Jesus re rejects that. And again, there's been a lot of talk. Well, I won't even go there about, you know, churches can't talk about anything. Yeah, churches can. We can... We, we as a church have never endorsed a political candidate. We, we don't do that. We talk about moral issues, which are also political issues, all the time. And it's a very appropriate that we do that. Anyway, enough of that. But Jesus rejects political simplicity, rejects political apathy. 
But Jesus also rejects political superiority. When I say political superiority, I'm talking about people who think really that the answer to the world's problems, the answer is a political answer. Jesus rejects that, and he does that in his answer. Think about it. So he says, show me a coin. He talks about the coin. Whose inscription is on it? When he's saying that, they all know it's Caesar's image, and it's his inscription. And then when Jesus says, give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what God's, think about what he's saying. He's using a Greek word, icon, for image. And he says, whose image? Caesar's. And then he says, basically he's saying, give to Caesar what's made, what has Caesar's image on it, the coin, money, they're in his economic system. He's saying, yeah, pay the tax. Give to Caesar what has his image on it and give to God what has God's image on it. Now, let me ask you, what has God's image on it? We do. Even our own constitution tells us that we have a creator and that creator made mankind in his image. And this is the same thing Jesus is saying here. He's saying, give to Caesar what has Caesar's image, but give to God what has God's image. What Jesus is saying here, he's giving a very precise answer. He's saying, you can give to Caesar some of what he wants, but you cannot give to Caesar all of what he wants. This is revolutionary. This is a revolutionary answer. What Jesus is talking about is limited government. For the first time in history, somebody is publicly teaching that the government is not the highest authority. Even Jewish people. It's like this. Before this time in history, every king that ever existed would either say, I'm a god, that's what Caesar was saying, or they were saying, I'm the choice of the gods, or I wouldn't be here, or I'm the choice of God. Even Jewish people said this. So every king said, I am ruling with divine authority. All of a sudden, Jesus gives this answer, and he's saying, there is a higher authority than Caesar. Give to Caesar what Caesar's, but don't you dare give to Caesar what is God's. And that's your ultimate allegiance. What Jesus is saying, and it's a political answer, he's saying, give to Caesar what, some of what he wants, his money, but do not give to Caesar the allegiance of him being God or him ruling with final divine authority. Don't give him that kind of allegiance. Don't you dare. And that's how Jesus, it's not a non-answer, it's not a yes or no answer, it's a revolutionary answer. Because that had never been taught in history. Jesus brought that with his answer. Now, what do we, what do we know? Well, from the ministry of Christ, we not only know that we should reject all three of those political responses, 
We reject political simplicity, political apathy, political superiority. And why? Because why do we reject political superiority? Because government ultimately does not have the answers. No government ultimately has the answers to the world's problems. And no political system, even a political system as, as good as our political system, you know, it's the best political system as you compare political systems. And we have this way of removing people in power and putting in different people in power. The problem is, and even revolutions, revolutions just remove one group of people and put in another group of people to power. The problem is there are always people in power and people tend to use power for their own purposes. Why do they do that? Because the, pro the main problem with the world is really the problem in every human heart. The main problem in the world is not politics. It can't be fixed by politics. The main problem in the world is evil in the world. And when I say evil in the world, let me, where does that come from? It comes from the evil that exists in every single human heart, mine and yours. And I know some of you are probably bristling a little bit going, whoa, I am not evil. Well, if you want to push back, that's fine. Actually, God made a way for us to figure out whether we're evil or not by giving us a righteous standard. We can see that in the Ten Commandments. So God says, oh, are you evil or not evil? Well, here's the perfect standard. Here, here's the right standard. If you violate this, you're wrong. Being wrong is being evil. Do you remember that? Do you remember the Ten Commandments? Never covet. Never want something somebody else has. Never tell a lie. Never twist the truth to your advantage. Not don't do this sometimes, don't do it today. Never tell a lie. Never take something that doesn't belong to you. Ne stealing. Never do that. If you do it once, you've broken the law. If you've broken one point in the law, you've broken it all. Never commit adultery. A and Jesus explains to us, never even lust in your heart. That's evil. Never murder. Or never even hate in our heart as Jesus taught us. That's evil. Never fail to honor your parents even for a moment. That's evil, God says. Never fail to keep a day, a week separate for rest and to worship God. Never take God's name in vain. Never misuse flippantly the name of God. If you do that one time, that's wrong, that's evil. He's saying, part of the Ten Commandments, never fail to keep God first in your life, even for a moment. If you violated one or any of these commands, God says, 
that's wrong. You have evil in your heart, just like I do. That's what he's saying. If you just break one, which is not my problem of just breaking one of these commandments. If you've only broken one, you've broken them all. Now, if you're a person that truly seeks justice, that's good. And the only way for true justice to happen is for evil wrongdoings to be punished. All wrong has to be punished. All evil has to be punished. But there's a problem with this, right? We all have been judged by God to be evil, every single one of us. And God says, because he's just, evil has to be punished. And because that sin is against God, it's actually separation from God forever. See, we're all in the same boat, every one of us. We've all sinned against, we're all rebels. We've all sinned against him. We're all evil. We don't want to deal with our own evil. We can't deal with our own evil. But it has everything to do, this problem we have has everything to do with why Jesus was in Jerusalem when he was asked this question. Because it's like two or three days before the crucifixion. And Jesus came to actually fix the world's problem. And the world's problems can't be fixed politically, but they can be fixed by what Jesus did. Think about it. A, a few days after this, in jail in Jerusalem is an insurrectionist named Barabbas who wanted to take down the systems take down Rome, take down the Pharisees. You want to take down everything. You want to burn it down. And then Jesus is arrested. And then by custom for a short time at that point in the first century, the governor would release one of the people. He finds no fault in Jesus, so he says, who do you want me to release? He thinks he's got an out. But all of a sudden, everybody's, they're yelling for who? Barabbas. They want Barabbas released. Why? It's not because they were fans of Barabbas. The zealots were. It's not that. It's that they saw Barabbas as a dangerous man. But Jesus Christ is more dangerous. Barabbas will seek to put somebody else in power. Jesus is pointing to our ultimate A revolutionary question, a revolutionary answer, and then a revolutionary response. How, how did they respond? Do you remember the last verse? And hearing this, they were amazed. And leaving, they went away. That was the fix. That's the gospel. You know what's interesting? When you think about Jesus and politics. Jesus had, he had 12 disciples, right? One was a Herodian. Matthew, he was a tax collector, a publican. One was a zealot. 
That was Simon the Zealot, not Simon Peter. Two guys named Simon were disciples. Simon the Zealot. Don't know a whole lot about him, except for he was a zealot. And no doubt many of the other disciples lined up with the Pharisees or even the Essenes. But they all left that to follow Jesus. At some point, they all realized this is not the answer. Jesus has the answer. Only Jesus can change a human heart, and it's the human heart that is the problem with the world. So the response of the crowd is not what we would think, not frustration or anger, amazement. But what I'm telling you, because Christ has done this for us, we all have a choice, an opportunity to respond, and it will revolutionize our life. You see, we not only have a creator, as the Constitution tells us, but he loves us. And even though he's perfect and tells us what righteousness is and what right is, we've all violated that. And even though because God's just and we all deserve punishment, he made a way by allowing his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the only person to walk this planet without sin, the only person qualified to die for our sin to voluntarily allow himself to be executed for crimes he didn't commit in a way of paying for our sin penalty individually. So the greatest decision that any of us will ever have in our life is not a political decision. It's a Christ decision. And it's not about church and it's not about religious rituals. It's not about baptism. It's not about doing good things, which is great. Jesus calls us to do good things. Ultimately, it's about accepting or rejecting the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He said, God invites all of us, the world, into relationship with Him. And we do that by responding to what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago, by responding to God in faith. Let me explain what I mean by responding to God in faith. That means that you believe Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, and that you trust what He did on the cross was sufficient to pay for your individual sins because that's what Jesus taught. And so God invites all of us to come into a relationship with Him forever just by faith, by understanding we're sinners and we have a need, and accepting Jesus, putting our faith in Him because we believe who He is and we have faith, we trust, and what He did is enough. And we're not saved by doing good things. We're saved by our faith in Christ. And so right now, before we close... I just want to give all of you, especially if you're new here at Grace, an opportunity to respond to God in faith, because it's the most important decision, and you're thinking about it now, so I don't want to lose the opportunity. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to lead in a short, what we call a sinner's prayer, because we're all sinners. We've all violated this standard. And if you pray this sincerely in your heart, your heart to God, God says it'll come into your life forever. I'm not saying that. 
God's saying that. The Bible's saying that. It would just be a way of verbalizing your response of faith to him. So let's all close, close our eyes, bow our heads if you would. And if you're not sure where you stand with God, I, I just challenge you, make this prayer your prayer to put this into your own words, something like this. Father God in heaven, first of all, I recognize that you love me. And even though that I've sinned against you, and God, I'm understanding that your love for me, it's, it's more than just emotion, it's action in that Jesus Christ physically came and died a torturous death to pay for my sins. And God, I thank you for that, and I don't deserve it. And Father, I'm asking for your forgiveness based on what Jesus has done, because that's the only way. And Lord, I want you to come into my life and, and help me to follow you. Because you're the only one worthy of ultimate allegiance. God, thank you for loving me like that. In Christ's name, amen. When we simply, and only you and God know if you're sincere, but when you put your faith in Christ, that will show up in your life because you will have a desire to want to know God better. You have a desire to want to follow him, even, even though you won't do that perfectly. And I'm going to dismiss in a moment. Before I do that, I'd like us, um, we're going to pray. I'd like us to bow our heads as we get ready to do that. If you'll bow your heads, close your eyes. And here, here's what I'm asking. Just one last thing. I promise I will not embarrass you. I know some of you don't know me. Trust me, I'm, I'm not going to embarrass you. But if, as far as you know, you prayed that prayer for the first time and you were sincere, what I'd like you to do is just kind of look at me while everybody else, is, their heads are bowed and they're not looking around, but if you'll just kind of look at me and you'll pop your hand up and kind of show me that you prayed that prayer. I'm not going to go get you. I'm not going to talk to you personally. I'm not going to have anybody else do that. I'm not going to identify you in any way just so that I can pray for you. If you'll just... We'll start on, on your right-hand side. If anybody over here, if you prayed that prayer, again, just, just pop your hand up. Let me see it. Make eye contact with me. Put it right back down. I see you back there. Thank you. Put it right back down. Thanks. I see you too. Thank you. Just pop it up and down. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. I see you over there. Thanks. Thanks, sir. Up and down. Thank you. And how about on your left side? Just, hey, Kevin, I just want you to know I prayed that prayer. I see you back there. Thank you. Step and down. Again, won't embarrass you, just so we can pray for you. I see you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just pop it up. Kind of make eye contact with me. Put it back down. That's all I'm asking you to do. Whether you raised your hand or not, if you prayed that prayer sincerely, God's come into your life and he's never leaving you. That's his promise. Let's stand together and we'll close. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. Thanks for uh, a place like grace. And Lord, uh, I thank you for everyone is, that's here and even those that maybe came agitated or, or a little angry or whatever, we're glad. And I, I pray that it's been okay for them and, and that they'll continue to come.
God, thanks for loving us and uh, making a way for all of us as sinners to be reconciled to you, even though we don't deserve it. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, come back next Sunday. The series continues. We may even talk about Republicans and Democrats. You better be here. All right, I'm just saying. See you next Sunday.